At Wildwood Community Church, we are for following Jesus together to the glory of God. We're for the church, for the community, for the nations, and for the next generation. To contact us or for more information, see our website at wildwoodchurch.org. Today we are going to be continuing a sermon series that we began several weeks ago called Defeating Death. And in this series, we've been walking through Matthew chapters 26, 27, and 28 so that we might understand a little bit more about who Jesus is and what he accomplished for us on the cross. And in this series so far, we've seen a number of things. We've seen that Jesus' life was given by him, not taken from him. We've seen that we can value Jesus most following the example of Mary as she poured the perfume on Jesus and anointed him at the dinner with Lazarus and with their friends. We were reminded that we can remember what Jesus has done for us by looking to the communion elements that Jesus gave to the church as symbols and reminders of his death on the cross for us. We've also seen that we can avoid the pitfall of failure by learning from the mistakes that Peter made at those moments right before Jesus went to the cross. And then last week, we saw how we can face adversity on our knees, following the example that Jesus gave with literally the weight of the world on his back, Jesus went to the Garden of Gethsemane and prayed there. Today, friends, we're going to continue this series in chapter 26 and into 27 as we're going to look at the identity of Jesus, his identity as the Son of God, as a sacrifice for our sins, and as our Savior. And so we're going to look at that today. But before we look at those verses together, uh, I want to just think for just a moment with us Uh, about how important someone's identity is. Who someone is really matters. And if you needed any argument to prove that point to you, let me just give you a few examples. If you're getting on an airplane, remember those things that you used to be able to get on and go to different cities? Imagine that you were getting on an airplane and you looked and the person who was in the cockpit was not a real pilot, but was just someone in a costume. Would that inspire a lot of confidence if it was someone just in a costume in the cockpit? No, you want a real pilot in the cockpit. Who someone is really matters. Or imagine you're going to have surgery and you walk into the the, the operating room and, and the doctor comes out to consult with you and this doctor lets you know that he actually never went to medical school but he just spends a lot of time in this quarantine environment watching the Discovery Channel. Now, how confident would you be to put your life in his hands in the OR? Probably not very confident, right? Or let's just imagine that you had some money to invest. Remember that stuff that we used to have some of? Remember that money? Yeah, imagine you had some money to invest. Who would you entrust that money to invest with? Someone who understood finance or someone who had just won five straight games of Monopoly with their family, in this time as they're hanging out in their houses a little more. I mean, who is it that you would trust? I mean, obviously, you would trust the person who understands finances. See, in all of those instances, we're reminded that the identity of someone really matters. We've seen that even echoed in current examples in our society. When our governor or our mayor gives us direction about how social we should be, we Listen to that. Why? 
because of who they are. They have authority in the areas where we live. When the CDC gives guidelines about how much we should wash our hands or, or those kinds of things, we, we heed those warnings. Why? Because of who they are, because of their education, because of their experience, because of the things that they understand that we don't. And when we think about the superintendent of schools, you know, saying that we're going to go to no in-person classes for the rest of the semester, why is it that we don't show up at school on Monday? Well, it's because of who gave that direction. Who someone is really matters. Now, I tell you that today because we're going to look at the identity of Jesus Christ. In the verses we're going to look at today, Jesus is on trial before Caiaphas the high priest and before Pontius Pilate, a Roman leader in that region. And in those two trials, we see that Jesus is on trial, and they try to find something that he did wrong, but they can't find anything he did wrong, so they have to put him on trial for his identity. And they didn't understand who he really was, and so they made a terrible choice. Friends, when we understand who Jesus really is, it makes all the difference in the world. I mean, is it okay for me to trust Jesus with my eternity? Well, it matters who he is. If he really is the Son of God, then there is no one who is better to trust our eternity to than him. But if he's not, well, maybe we've just been duped. It matters who he is. Should Jesus be the Lord of our lives? Should we follow him in obedience all the days of our lives? Well, if he is the one who created it all, if he is the author of life, then yes, We should trust him and obey him and make him our Lord. But if he's not, then maybe we're following a fallible source. Friends, who Jesus is really matters. And when Jesus prepares to go to the cross and the trials before Caiaphas and Pilate, Jesus' true identity shines through and invites us to trust him. So as we gather today, I want us to look at Matthew chapter 26, verses 57 to 68, and then Matthew chapter 27, verses 1 and 2, and then 11 to 26. As we prepare to unpack these verses, I want to read them for us first, and then we'll go back and make three observations from these verses today. Matthew 26, beginning in verse 57, says this. It says, Then those who had seized Jesus led him to Caiaphas, the high priest, where the scribes and the elders had gathered. And Peter was following at a distance as far as the courtyard of the high priest, and going inside, he sat with the guards to see the end. Now the chief priests and the whole council were seeking false testimony against Jesus that they might put him to death. But they found none, though many false witnesses came forward. At last, two came forward and said, This man said, I am able to destroy the temple of God and to rebuild it in three days. And the high priest stood up and said, Have you no answer to make? What is it that these men testify against you? But Jesus remained silent. And the high priest said to him, I adjure you by the living God, tell us if you are the Christ, the Son of God. And Jesus said to him, You have said so. 
But I tell you, from now on, you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power and coming on the clouds of heaven. Then the high priest tore his robes and he said, he has uttered blasphemy. What further witnesses do we need? You have now heard his blasphemy. What is your judgment? And they answered, he deserves death. Then they spit in his face and they struck him. And some slapped him, saying, Prophesy to us, you Christ, who is it that struck you? Continuing in chapter 27, it says, When morning came, all the chief priests and the elders of the people took counsel against Jesus to put him to death. And they bound him, and they led him away, and delivered him over to Pilate, the governor. Now, Jesus stood before the governor, and the governor asked him, Are you the king of the Jews? And Jesus said, you have said so. But when he was accused by the chief priests and the elders, he gave no answer. Then Pilate said to him, do you not hear how many things they testify against you? But he gave him no answer, not even to a single charge, so that the governor was greatly amazed. Now at the feast, the governor was accustomed to release for the crowd any one prisoner whom they wanted. And they had then a notorious prisoner called Barabbas. So when they had gathered, Pilate said to them, Whom do you want me to release for you, Barabbas or Jesus, who is called the Christ? For he knew that it was out of envy that they had delivered him up. Besides, while he was sitting on the judgment seat, his wife sent word to him, Have nothing to do with that righteous man, for I have suffered much because of him today in a dream." Now the chief priests and the elders persuaded the crowd to ask for Barabbas and to destroy Jesus. And the governor again said to them, which of the two do you want me to release for you? And they said, Barabbas. And Pilate said to them, then what shall I do with Jesus who is called Christ? And they all said, let him be crucified. And he said, why? What evil has he done? But they shouted all the more, let him be crucified. So when Pilate saw that he was gaining nothing, but rather that a riot was beginning, he took water and he washed his hands before the crowd, saying, I am innocent of this man's blood. See to it yourselves. And the people answered, his blood be on us and on our children. Then he released for them Barabbas, and having scourged Jesus, delivered him to be crucified. Now, friends, in these verses that we have just read, we're going to see several things today. The first thing that I want us to see relates to Jesus' identity as the Son of God. We see that in chapter 26, verses 57 through 68. Jesus, the Son of God. Now, we see that come together as Jesus is on trial before Caiaphas. Remember, last week, we were in the Garden of Gethsemane. Jesus was there in the Garden of Gethsemane with his disciples praying when Judas and the mob came and grabbed Jesus. And when they grabbed him and they took him, they they brought him back to the home of Caiaphas, the high priest. It was sometime in the middle of the night, a few hours before sunrise, when they showed up. And when they got there, they were going to have a trial. They already knew what they wanted to do. They wanted to sentence Jesus to death. 
But even Caiaphas and the other members of the religious council wanted to have some kind of a trial where they can make an accusation stick against Jesus that they might then turn him over to the Romans for capital punishment. So they gathered together with this mob. Now, I want you to imagine just for a moment that there is Jesus on trial before Caiaphas, and everyone in the room has gathered there for the sole purpose of taking Jesus, accusing him of a crime, and delivering him over for death. But when they get to that moment, they can't come up with a single charge that Jesus was guilty of. In Jewish law, it would have required two witnesses to say something that Jesus did wrong so that they might deliver him over to this capital punishment of death. But as they looked around, nobody could come up with anything. Can you imagine that? A group of people who gathers for the express purpose of killing Jesus can't find a reason to do so. So the members of the religious council begin to prompt different people to go forward. It says they had false witnesses, people who had made up stories, but they couldn't even get their stories right. Nothing would stick because Jesus was innocent. Finally, after a little while, a couple of people came together and they said, we remember a a long time ago, maybe three years ago now, Jesus told this story about, he, he made this comment He said that he had the ability to tear down the temple and in three days build it up again. Now, when they said that, Caiaphas' eyes kind of light up. You can imagine this setting. They didn't have anyone who could make a charge stick. Well, suddenly, somebody at least had something. It wasn't all that salacious, but Caiaphas thinks, maybe we could jump on this. And so Caiaphas takes that statement that Jesus had made, and he throws it at Jesus' feet, and he says, what do you have to say for yourself? You're making statements about tearing the temple down? I mean, who do you think you are? But Jesus remained silent. Now, that didn't give Caiaphas what he wanted, because Caiaphas knew that he couldn't go to Pilate, the Roman leader, and the Romans were the only ones who had the ability to give the death sentence out to a prisoner. He couldn't go to Pilate and tell him that Jesus made a statement three years ago about tearing the temple down, but then rebuilding it in three days. That that wasn't something that would have excited the Roman governor into sending someone as popular as Jesus onto the cross. So Caiaphas went to plan B. What did he do? He came at Jesus directly, and he said, I'm going to put you under an oath. And while you're under an oath, you're going to have to answer this question, Caiaphas said. And the question I want answered is this, are you the Christ? Are you the Messiah? Are you the promised one? Are you the Son of God? Now, under oath, Jesus has this statement come to him. And in verse 64, it says that Jesus gave him an answer. This is what he said. He said, you have said so. That's what Jesus said. You have said so. What does that phrase mean? What Jesus was basically saying was, well, that's the way you say it. And what Jesus was implying was, Caiaphas, you may have some words right. You may have the word Christ right. You may have Son of God right. But your understanding of those terms is all 
wrong. And so Jesus goes on after he says, that's the way that you would put it. But Jesus says, let me tell you a little bit more about what those terms actually mean. And he goes on to quote from Psalm 110, verse 1, and from Daniel chapter 7, verses 13 and 14, when he says, you're going to see, Caiaphas, the Son of Man, seated at the right hand of power and coming on the clouds of heaven. Now, friends, when Jesus said that, Caiaphas came unglued. And why did Caiaphas come unglued? Well, Caiaphas came unglued because Jesus was making a statement I'm, Jesus says, I'm not using titles like Christ and Son of God, like some award that I won at the county fair. Jesus said, I'm using titles like Christ and Son of God because that is who I actually am. I'm the one who will sit exalted over all things and will reign on a throne forever and ever and ever. I'm the one who will return with power and glory to judge the earth. I am God himself. That's what Jesus said. And when Caiaphas heard this, he was so distraught because you can imagine this moment. In the moment, Caiaphas looked like he had all of the power and Jesus looked like he had none. But in one turn of a phrase, Jesus reminded Caiaphas that he was the one who sat in authority over Caiaphas. He was the one who, though he may be crucified later that morning, would one day raise from the dead and return to this earth and reign forever. Caiaphas hears this, and Caiaphas freaks out. He tears his robes, and he says, we don't need anybody else to provide a testimony because we all have heard with our own ears what he just said. Basically, what what Caiaphas was saying was, was something that actually was true if Jesus wasn't who he said he was. See, according to the Jewish law in Leviticus chapter 24, if someone claimed to be God and wasn't, they should be killed. Oh, but if someone claimed to be God and they were, then who were they? They were God. And so Jesus makes the statement, Caiaphas assumes that Jesus is wrong, when in fact, Jesus was right. I wonder what would have happened if Caiaphas had had a trial, a real trial. Jesus makes a statement, I am the Son of God. I am God himself, God in the flesh right here in front of you. I'm the one who will reign forever and ever. I wonder if Caiaphas had had a real trial. He might have said, well, let's have witnesses to this. And they would have called in people who would have come, including Lazarus. And Lazarus could have said, Hey, I was once dead, and now I'm alive, and he's the one that made it happen. Suddenly, Jesus' claim to be God doesn't seem so crazy anymore, does it? People could have come together and said, I heard Jesus preach the Sermon on the Mount. Just a a few months ago, I heard him preach, and he preached with authority like no one else has ever preached. Somebody else might have said, you know, Jesus related to me in a way that no one has ever related before. Jesus took my deaf ears and allowed them to hear, loosed my tongue to the mute man and allowed him to speak. The blind person could see again. 
If that trial had been for real, evidence might have been brought and Jesus might have been vindicated through his actions that he was indeed who he said he was. But Caiaphas was in such a hurry to prove his presuppositions that he just sentenced Jesus immediately to death. Now, friends, in this moment where Jesus is on trial before Caiaphas, we see three things about his identity that I think we, we, we can't miss. The first thing about Jesus' true identity that we see here is that Jesus is seen as innocent or holy. Even among a group of people who had the express purpose of getting together to arrest Jesus and to send him to death, they could not make a charge stick. Jesus was innocent. He was perfect. He deserved to die for no crime because he had committed no crime. He's innocent. He's holy. Second thing we see is that he is the Christ. Now, what does that title, the Christ, even mean? The title, the Christ, means the the promised one, the, the Savior. Jesus was the fulfillment of God's Old Testament promise to send to his people a Savior that would not only save the people of Israel, but would provide a path of blessing for people all over the earth who would trust and believe in him. Jesus was innocent. Jesus also let them know that he was the Christ, that he was the Savior of the world. Not only that, but Jesus affirmed that he was the Son of God. And by that, we don't mean that he was kind of like God. By that, Jesus meant that he was God in the flesh. As Jesus showed up in Caiaphas's court that night, his true identity stood out. Caiaphas missed it. May we not miss it. May we see the true identity of Jesus. Now, a couple of lessons we can gain from Caiaphas's trial. The first one is this. Jesus is always sovereign, even when it looks like someone or something else is in control. Jesus is always sovereign, even when it looks like someone or something else is in control. If you would have just looked at that courtroom that night, who did it look like was in control? Well, at that moment, it looked like Caiaphas was in control. And yet Jesus was the one who was sovereign over all. You know, when you think about that reality for a moment, I wanted us just to, to paint it inside of our world today. Right now, we live in a world and a time and a season where it looks like a virus is calling the shots, where it looks like government officials are the only ones who might be able to save us. And yet, we live in a world with no matter what it looks like, Jesus is the one who is always sovereign. So if that's the case, what do we need to remember? Well, if that's the case, what we need to remember is we need to remember to have faith while we wait for his rule to be revealed. Jesus says he will come one day with power, and knowing that he will come back one day with power ought to encourage us and inspire us to have faith in him while we wait for his rule to be revealed. 
one of the things that we see in connection with the fact of Jesus' true identity as the Son of God. But a second thing that I think we need to see inside of these verses is this, Jesus the sacrifice. Not just Jesus the Son of God, but Jesus the sacrifice. Now, we see this in chapter 27 in the verses that we read. Now, it's, it's interesting what transpired after the trial at Caiaphas's place. Caiaphas, even though he had made the declaration that Jesus deserved death, and even though his religious council around him concurred with that opinion, they could not just immediately kill Jesus themselves for two reasons. First of all, by Jewish law, they could not sentence someone to death in the dark. That trial would have to take place at daybreak. And so it is still dark when they make their determination, and so they just wait for a little while until the sun comes up. And when the sun comes up in the light of day, in the very early morning hours of that Good Friday morning, they give their sentence that Jesus should die. Well, after they give that sentence, the second thing that had to happen was they had to go from Caiaphas's house to Pilate's house. Because just like we mentioned before, the Jewish people in the first century did not have the authority to give out capital punishment. So if they had wanted to just censor Jesus or embarrass him, they could have done that themselves. But in order to turn Jesus over to death, they needed the help of the Romans. And so Caiaphas takes Jesus and they walk him over to Pilate so that Pilate might deal with him. And that's where we pick up the story in chapter 27. Now, I want us to think for a moment about Jesus going to Pilate. Remember, the Jews took him there for the express purpose of Pilate killing him. That's why they took him to Pilate and didn't deal with the problem themselves. Now, I think it's fascinating to think that Pilate was the person to deal with this in light of biblical prophecy. You see, when the Jewish people historically had wanted to kill someone because of capital punishment, they would do so by stoning that person. Much as we see in the book of Acts a little later on with the stoning of Stephen, that was the way they carried out their sentences as Jewish people. But the Romans, they carried out capital punishment in a different way, and that was through crucifixion, where someone would be nailed to a cross through their hands and through their feet. Now, the Romans had only been in power in this region of the world for a very short period of time. But hundreds of years before the Romans ever came in power in Palestine, in the land of Israel, a prophecy was given in Psalm chapter 22 that I think is very interesting. In Psalm 22, verse 16, speaking of the Messiah, speaking of the Christ, it says, they have pierced my hands and my feet, a picture of crucifixion. You see, they took Jesus to Pilate because they had a plan. But don't you see how God had planned this out even long before that? Having the Romans in power, this prophecy might be fulfilled in that time. Jesus had come at the fullness of time, the Scripture says, so that he might give his life as a sacrifice for our sins. Another prophecy that we see, that we, we see echoed inside of this, is Isaiah chapter 53, verse 7. 
It says that the Messiah or the Christ was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. Like a lamb that is led to the slaughter and like a sheep that before its shears is silent, so he opened not his mouth. This prophecy that was given 700 years before Jesus came to the earth echoes what we see in this passage. Jesus silent before Caiaphas and Pilate. Jesus led to Pilate as a sheep led to the slaughter so that he might offer his life as a sacrifice for our sins. Friends, Jesus went to give his life for us. He was crucified for us. Caiaphas thought that it was his job that he was taking Jesus there, when in reality Jesus was offering his life for you and for me. A number of verses in the New Testament echo this thought. 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 24 says it this way. It says, He himself, Jesus himself, for our sins and his body on the cross, that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds... You have been healed. 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 18. For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the Spirit. Jesus died for us. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 21. For our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Jesus went to the cross, though innocent, to die for the penalty that our sins required. Knowing that Jesus was a sacrifice for us, knowing that he was a substitute for us, explains something of the reason for his silence. Sure, Jesus maybe was silent before Caiaphas and Pilate because there was no arguing with men who had already made up their minds. But also, Charles Spurgeon has another thought about this that I think is an interesting take on Jesus' silence in these trials. Spurgeon says this, Jesus answered nothing, for he was there as his people's representative. And though he had not sinned, They were guilty of all that was falsely laid to his charge. He might have cleared himself of every accusation that was brought against him, but that would have left the load of guilt upon those whose place he came to take. So he answered never a word. Such silence was sublime. Think about it, friends. Jesus was silent at the cross. He could have defended himself, but there was no defense for the sin of the people that he was representing. Jesus went to the cross to take the penalty that our sins deserved, so he kept silent in that moment, taking the penalty that was meant for you and for me so that we might be forgiven and he might pay the penalty for us. Now, friends, when you think about all of what transpired in that moment, with Pilate. It's a fascinating thing for us to see what happened. Because in that moment, Pilate takes Jesus on trial. 
And the same thing that happened with Caiaphas happens with Pilate. Pilate examines Jesus, and he finds nothing in Jesus that is worthy of death. Pilate has no sympathy for the Jews. He has no place in his heart for Jesus. He just can't find any reason why these charges requiring crucifixion, which was a terrible way to die, should apply to this man. And so he figures, I ought to just let this guy go. His wife even sends word over, let him loose, let him go. You want nothing to do with that innocent man. And so Pilate, in that moment, realizes that he wants to let Jesus go free. But he has a problem. There's a mob outside. A riot is developing in the city. The people want Jesus to die. And so Pilate thinks, I would love to get out of this situation. So maybe there's another option. Instead of me either convicting Jesus or acquitting him, maybe I can get out of this through a loophole, through a piece of tradition. You see, apparently Pilate every year at the time of the Passover would release one prisoner who was sentenced to death. And at this time, he thought, surely this crowd that had been celebrating Jesus as he entered on Palm Sunday, surely this crowd would select Jesus as the person to be released this Passover. And so he comes and he says, who should I release to you? Should I release Jesus or should I release Barabbas? Now, he picks Barabbas probably because Barabbas was the one inside of the jail who was most worthy of death. He thinks, should, you, should I kill the innocent one? Should I kill the one who is rumored to raise the dead? Should I kill the one who is the wonderful teacher? Should I kill this one or should I kill the insurrectionist and the criminal? Pilate thinks he's found his way out. And yet, what happens? The crowd doesn't take the bait. It says the religious leaders pushed them to shout all the more, crucify Jesus, crucify Jesus. And so Jesus is sent to crucifixion. The righteous is sentenced to die. Meanwhile, the guilty is released free. Now, I want you to see one more thing inside of this passage that I think is fascinating. How long had Jesus been in custody of the Romans? A few minutes? An hour, maybe? And yet there already was a cross ready for him to die. Where did that cross come from? Well, it probably came from the cross prepared for Barabbas. You know, Jesus, it says in the other gospel, was crucified between two thieves. You've heard this story in Luke's gospel. There was people on either side of him. The words that were used to describe those two on either side are the same word that is used to describe Barabbas. Most likely that morning, Barabbas and his two cohorts in crime were sentenced to go out to the field to be crucified. It was on Barabbas' cross that Jesus would die. Jesus literally died in his place. And in this, friends, we see the incredible picture of who Jesus is as a sacrifice for us, as a substitute for us. 
Jesus died in our place. The Bible tells us that all of us have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And the wages of sin or the the, the consequence because we are sinners is death. So what did Jesus do? He came and made a way for us to be reconciled to God by dying in our place. The righteous dying in the place of the guilty so that we might be forgiven. Friends, when you see this story, there is so much injustice that we see. Jesus should have been the one to go free. Barabbas is the one that should have been sent to the cross. And yet just the opposite happened. But friends, I'm so thankful that it played out that way. Because if Barabbas would have died that day, Barabbas would have died for Barabbas. Because Jesus went to the cross, a way was made for you and me have our sins forgiven. Think of all the things that you have done in your life that you would want to judge. The thoughts that you've had, the actions that you've committed, the things that you wish you could take back, the things that have even violated your own standards, much less God's perfect standard. The consequence for all of those failures and mistakes, Jesus offered to pay for us. He not only died for Barabbas, but friends, he took the cross that was built for you and for me. By his stripes and by his wounds, we are healed. In this passage, we have seen Jesus, the son, and we've seen Jesus, the sacrifice. But I want us to conclude our look at these verses by by seeing Jesus, our Savior, Now, I've got a question mark there, and that question mark is very intentional because Jesus definitely is the Son of God, and Jesus absolutely died as a sacrifice for sin. But the question mark is here because of the word our. How is it that Jesus is not just the Christ? How is it that he is my Savior? What needs to transpire in our response to him? Well, friends, as we think about this, we need to be reminded that there are really only two options for how we might respond to the person and the work of Jesus. We either respond to who he is by embracing him in faith. That's, that's one option, to embrace him in faith. But but a second option is that we might reject him and go our own way. If we embrace him in faith, then he died for us, our sins are forgiven, and we have an opportunity to spend an eternity in heaven with God our Father. But if we reject him, which is another option that is available, and if we go our own way, then we are left to pay the penalty for our own sins. The cross that was built, we will eventually have to go to. Metaphorically speaking, there's not another option. See, Pilate thought he could take a third way. Pilate thought, I'm not going to embrace him in faith and set him free and follow him. I'm not going to reject him and say that he was guilty and send him to the cross with some act of of indignation. Pilate wanted to take a third option, and that basically was to sit this one out. 
Pilate goes out and he just washes his hands very publicly in front of the Jewish people. He says, I'm innocent of this man's blood. I see nothing that he has done wrong. But if you want to kill him, you go right ahead. Pilate thought that he had taken a third option of just sitting this one out, of being neutral as it relates to Christ. But it's obvious in light of the story that that is not really an option at all. Really, you're either embracing him in faith or you're rejecting him and going your own way. Which will it be? And how do we come to that conclusion? How do we make our response? Well, I think that there are a couple of things that we need to think about in terms of making our response to him. The first thing I think it's important for us to see inside of this passage is that we make our response to him really it's dependent upon who we're listening to. Who we're listening to. You know, those in this story and this account of Jesus going to the cross all formed some opinion about Jesus, but really their sources were all different. Caiaphas did not even allow evidence to be submitted at the time of his trial. He had already made up his mind. His own presuppositions and ideas clouded his ability to see Jesus any other way. There are different voices that that speak into people's hearts and minds about who someone is. You know, Wearsby comments this about this. He says, of the different influences that influenced people around the time of Jesus at the cross, it says, Judas yielded to the devil in his great sin. Meaning the devil influenced Jesus, John 13, or the devil influenced Judas. John 13 indicates that. It says, Peter yielded to the flesh when he denied his Lord. The, the spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. But it says, but Pilate yielded to the world and listened to the crowd. Pilate looked for the easy way and not the right way. See, friends, Pilate had an opportunity to talk to Jesus himself. But instead, he took the crowd's word for it to tragic consequences. Two different groups of people in this situation. There were crowds who were shouting, crucify him. Where did they get their information? Well, it says in the text that they got their information from the Jewish religious leaders who wanted Jesus killed, so they stirred up the crowd and told them to yell, crucify him. And so that was where they got their information. They did not get their information from Jesus himself. They got their information from the Jewish religious leaders. Where did Pilate get his information? Well, Pilate got his information from the crowds. And where did the crowds get their information? From the Jewish religious leaders. Those who got their information directly from Jesus, the disciples, the people of Galilee, the people that went and heard him speak, the people who had miracles worked on them or on family members of theirs, they, they had a different take on Jesus, a different understanding. They had a firsthand connection with him that changed their conclusion. But the crowds in Pilate took this secondhand information and it led them to some tragic results. So friends, the question that I want to ask you today is this, who are you listening to to make your conclusions about Jesus? Who are you listening to? 
You know, it's possible that you're listening to the History Channel about who Jesus is. If you are, you might be drawing some conclusions about Jesus based on the ideas of scholars who think it's preposterous to think that God would come in the flesh. Well, if you believe that God can't come in the flesh, then you've already made your decision about who Jesus is without actually looking at the evidence. Don't be influenced by the wrong voices. Where are you getting your information about Jesus? Friends, I would challenge you today that there's a better source to get information about Jesus than me. The best source that you have to get information about Jesus Christ is from Jesus himself. Are you listening to Jesus to get your information about him? Where can you find that information? Well, friends, you can find out the information about Jesus by going to the historical record of his life. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, the gospel accounts, are historical records of Jesus' life. Don't take some scholar in North Carolina's word for it. Don't take some guy on a stage, word for it. Go read the historical record yourself. It's amazingly accessible. See the person of Jesus revealed on the pages of Scripture and listen to him in terms of your response, not the words of someone else. Go to the historical record and and see the fact that the tomb is empty. Jesus really rose from the dead on the third day. There's a historical record connected to that. That fact alone ought to give incredible weight and significance to the historical record of the Scriptures as we look at who Jesus really was. See, friends, Caiaphas and Pilate would have been right to either dismiss Jesus or to accuse him of blasphemy if he wasn't really who he said he was. But go to the source and find out. He is who he said he was. He is the Son of God who gave his life as a sacrifice for our sins. When we see and listen to Jesus himself, friends, we can go from Jesus being a question, Jesus our Savior, to Jesus our Savior if we believe and trust in him. Friends, as we gather today, people are are all over our city, all over our state, in all different spots and circumstances in life, but all of us have something in common. All of us have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. All of us are in need of a Savior. Don't live your life with a question mark about who will pay the penalty for your sin. Live your life with the exclamation of faith, trusting Christ for the forgiveness of your sin. Where you sit right now, you have the opportunity to trust in him. Would you pray with me? Father, we thank you so much for just the opportunity you've given us to worship you and to look into your scripture together today and to see the historical record of your son Jesus and all that He is and all that he has done for us. And Father, I pray just that everyone who hears me today, everyone who is worshiping with us now, 
that they would not take anyone else's word for it, but they would go and see Jesus for who he really is. And when they see him as the Son of God, when they see the sacrifice that he gave on the cross, Father, that you would well up within them faith and that they would reach out to you and thank you for sending your Son to die for us and embrace that gift of life forever. We thank you and we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.